Welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host, and today's guest is local writer Scott Sparling. Scott's debut novel, Wire to Wire, was just released by Tin House Books to rave reviews, including Publishers Weekly giving it a starred review and making it pick of the week. Welcome to Between the Covers, Scott Sparling. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, the way the book is described to start out with. In the, in the, on the cover, it says that it's an homage to the American crime novel. And while it definitely had a lot of uh, crime elements to me, I didn't feel like that quite did it justice. It, from When I was reading it, I felt like it really had a um, primarily a sense of being an adventure or a road novel, but in a unique way mixed with a romance and the, and the crime element. And I, I was curious if you considered the book to primarily be a, a, a crime book. I never did while I, was, while I was writing it. I actually like your take on it a lot better. You know, you need to be able to kind of put a label or a category on something and an homage to a crime novel is is probably as good as anything. Uh, But I never thought of it that way as I was writing it or working on it. Um, I thought of it as a book about, it is a road novel, and it's it's a love story uh, uh, between characters who are, um, uh, you know, and there's some crime involved as well. Um, but to me, it's that story between the three main characters, Slater, Harp, and Lane, and how you resolve things when your loyalty is torn in more than one direction. Um, the the crime part of it is the plot, and that's, I think, what keeps a lot of people turning the pages. And do you consider yourself to have specific literary influences? Do you see the um, see some predecessors either in the road novel or in the crime novel that you really were influenced by? None in the, none in the crime novel. Uh, and I, and I, I guess I'm not very well versed in that genre. But certainly uh, in more of the literary fiction world, particularly Robert Stone and the book Dog Soldiers and his, his, other, his first book, really, Hall of Mirrors, um, those books, when I started writing, that's what I was reading. And they really blew me away uh, the 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 way that he writes using very little exposition, what he does with dialogue, the fact that it's in the third person, the humor that's kind of dark humor in there, all of, all of those things I admired, and I, I've probably read Dog Soldiers, you know, six times. I've worn out three copies. I'll probably wear out more. Uh, and it got so when I was writing this that I would only I would try only to read books in the third person which was hard to do in the past 10 years in particular when so many books are written in the first person. But so I read, I read Robert Stone. Um, I read a lot of Stephen Wright, who uh, wrote Meditations in Green, um, uh, some of Doctorow's books that are written in third person. Uh, I mean, anything really that I could find that, that seemed kind of in this same sound. Well, one of your main protagonists, Slater, he um, has a really unusual situation going on with his health, which actually influences the way the story is told. So maybe we could start with you reading the the prologue, as we discussed, and ha- and people can hear your prose and also find out a little bit about what is going on with one of the main people telling the story. Sure, I'd be glad to. This is the this is the beginning of Wire to Wire. The screens in Michael Slater's editing suite had immaculate reception. At night, they showed him things no one had ever filmed. Sometimes, Slater could make the images go away, but he could not keep them away. Screen 3, a 1981 Sony Studio Master, 
showed a freight train rolling through a dark Detroit switchyard. Silver-edged clouds hid the moon, and up ahead, invisible in the dark, a power line hung low over the tracks, hustling a current of electrons endlessly onward. Of the two fools standing on top of the train, one was Slater. An unlit joint bobbed between his lips. Slater and Harp had their heads down, searching their pockets for matches. The clouds were the river above. Everything else was the river below. At least, that's what Slater had been told once by a woman. It was all 99% water, she said, and there was nothing you could do to change the way any of it flowed. Standing on top of a moving freight was against all the rules that Harp and Slater always followed. Still, there they were on screen three, perched high on a loaded woodchip car. Harp had his back to the power line, which was coming to slice off his head. And as the train began picking up speed, he found a pack of matches. I'll light it, you light it, let me light it, Harp said. The match flared in his hand. Slater bent down slightly to meet the flame. At the last possible instant, the river above shifted. Moonlight cut through a gap in the clouds and reflected off the wire. Slater saw it coming and pushed Harp into the wood chips. He tried, in that same motion, to drop to his knees, but he was not quite fast enough. The power line kissed his forehead. It lit him up like a torch and lit the joint with 33,000 volts, but Slater never had a chance to inhale. Well, with with Slater and Harp jumping trains and with Slater um, getting that injury, getting electrocuted, that really seems to open up the narrative possibilities to me for you as a writer being able to um, – because he now can see yeah. things that other people aren't seeing and reviews his life in a way that's not entirely in, linear, in a linear, linear fashion. Yeah, it, it messes him up and it, it does give me the – you know, I, I thought that would give me the chance to kind of – move some of his memories around in different places and and what I what I hoped to do and I don't you know it's up to each reader to see how well this works I guess but I but you know sometimes you'll experience an event and you're while well, while you're experiencing it you have one take on it but then some time passes and you and you look back on it and you think you know what I was thinking was happening was only part of it or or was was wrong in certain ways and his weird memory issues or hallucinations, if you want to call them that, uh, at least open up the possibility that he can look back at this. Because a lot of a lot of really screwed up things happened to him later in in that that summer when he goes back to Michigan, and so they kind of haunt him, and he he does have to reevaluate them in order to get past them. With with trains being such a big theme and jumping trains. I was really impressed with how you were able to give the book such a uh, forward momentum. And I think part of it was the fact that Slater was able to tell it in such a unique way. But um, th- there's another local writer who, who wrote on your book, Willie Vlauten, calling uh-huh. saying that it felt like you were in a – when you read the book, it feels like you're in a stolen car without brakes. And that, yeah. that really, I thought, captured my experience of reading the book. And I was wondering if that was a conscious thing on your part to try to give it such a um, strong – propulsion going forward it, it feels like the the characters every single character feels like they're on the run from something yeah yeah i you know i think that was me um experimenting with what made me want to keep going and i i i, I did um 
I did feel pretty sensitive all the way through through it to keep the pages turning pretty fast because it's a, it's a complicated story. It would it, there, there, believe me, there are drafts where it gets pretty bogged down and and uh, it was hard to know the mix between how much time should they spend on trains and and how much time off. And actually, the first draft of this book, they were almost always on the trains. And uh, what I found out that. that was that that's incredibly limiting from a dramatic point of view. The only certain, you know, there's you're in a boxcar. Certain people, nobody can come in or come out. There's no entrances or exits. It's all dialogue. There's no props. Um, it's just too too blank of a stage. So ultimately, I had to find the right mix, or what I hope is the right mix between the train stuff, which I think is is cool. I mean, I love that stuff. But you got to get off the train and be in northern Michigan and be in some living rooms and bedrooms and bars and other places to make the story, to make a to make a full story out of it. Well, I I know in in reading about your process and and you mentioned some of your early drafts that this book is a long time in the making and I remember reading. Correct me if I'm wrong that that at the beginning it was really a lot about trains and not very much plot. Yeah which is impressive that we've arrived at a book that is so tightly plotted yeah. at this point. Yeah, I, didn't, I, did, I was not um, enamored of plot when I began. I was, I was a much younger writer, and I thought uh, that plot was for commercial books and, and, that, and, 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 that, and that a, a book about trains where you're on the road and the, sent, and the writing is good and the sentences are holding you might be enough. And, and I sent, you know, there were versions of that, of that that got fairly good comments from agents and editors, um, but never quite got over the, the top to someone wanting to publish it. And, and the pushback that I would get years ago was, you know, it, it, there needs to be a, a story here that people can relate to so that, so that all of this great stuff about trains and all that stuff can, can you know, have a framework for it. And I resisted that. For for a good long time, I mean, I was just stubborn that uh, you know, nah, I didn't. But and then it's like it happens with people sometimes. Once the the light bulb finally went on, and I realized I need to, I, I need to make this work not just as writing but as a story. Then I really started thinking about how do I hook all these plot points together, and it was fun. And what is your own personal experience with trains? I mean, was this something you had to research, or were you actually jumping trains yourself, like your characters? Yeah, no, I was jumping trains. A friend, a friend of mine, and I from high school on uh, started jumping trains. And first, it was you know grabbing a ladder ride where they, and I do not recommend this, by the way. <laughs> I always want to give you that that caveat. But this is a while ago. Trains were a little different then. Uh, we'd grab a ladder ride. We'd ride it, you know, around the small town where we grew up, and then eventually we were we were in a box car and going to the next state. And uh, and and it wasn't long after that when we discovered that you know you could get on a box car uh, back then. I don't think this is true today, but you could get on a box car in some place like St. Paul or Minneapolis on one day and be in Everett, Washington three days later and just see the most amazing stuff that you would never see if you were driving or or traveling any other way. And and we got hooked. I mean, we would go out and take uh, two-week trips, uh, month-long trips. Uh, Our our biggest goal was coast-to-coast in Canada, Uh, you know, from from the Pacific to the Atlantic in Canada. And we made it from uh, Vancouver, B.C. to Toronto. And it, it was taking a long, long time, and we were both out of time. But uh, it was an amazing trip. 
In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Portland writer Scott Sparling about his debut novel, Wire to Wire. So, Scott, um, you told us a lot about the trains, and you, and you mentioned that it, it took a long time for you to really get your mind around the um, what you wanted to do as the plot hooks. So what are the things that are making Slater tick? Um, what Tell us about the story that you brought in when they're not on the trains. Well, Michael Slater, he's had this uh, this brush with the power line, and so his his uh, his his vision is a little bit uh, affected or or enhanced actually by that. But but he also sometimes has hallucinations, and although that's not a really big part of the of the uh, story, it does come into play a little bit. He he returns to the town where he grew up, small town in northern Michigan, and in the book. I mean, I love Northern Michigan. I've spent a lot of time up there, um, and it's a you know it's a it's a really good place. It's true that that for some people, it's kind of an escape. You know, you go up to Northern Michigan, you build your cabin back in the woods, and you don't have to deal with um, all of the stuff that we deal with in modern life in the city. And uh, that's just one aspect. In, in the real world, that's just one aspect of northern Michigan. But in the book, in the fictional northern Michigan, that's pretty much all there is. It's a, it's a place for people who are escaping reality, who are refugees from lives that haven't worked out or who have some, um, uh, um, something they're trying to, to, to run from or something, something they can't face. And so everybody that, that he meets, he's warned before he goes up there that everybody's got a, an ulterior motive behind their ulterior motive. He goes back anyway. He sees his old uh, friend from, from his train hopping days and falls in love with his friend's lover. And, and that puts all three of them in this position of where, how, do I, and how do I be true to myself and also true to the, to the people that are important to me? And Harp has a very specific way of, of dealing with that question. His, his way, the way he lives is to thyself be true. He does not compromise. And people like that, I mean, I think the world needs people like that, but they can be hard to live with on a day-to-day basis. And, and Harp is hard to live with. Uh, Slater is just looking for a safe place. He, he's, he's, what he's on the run from is everything life has thrown at him. And I was, I, I thought sometimes of that Dylan song, Shelter in the Storm, Shelter from the Storm, because in that song, the, the, you know, the, the narrative voice of that song is looking to, for a woman to provide shelter from the storm. And, and that's what Slater is doing. What he finds out is there isn't any shelter. You've you got to get used to the storm. You've got to figure out how to survive in the storm. So when you talk about, and we started out saying it's not a crime novel. To me, yeah, it's, it's a long way from being a crime novel. To me, it's a novel about Slater's heart there looking for, uh, looking for something that, that really doesn't exist. And then at one point he's in the car thinking to himself that he'd, he'd like to find a woman with a fearless heart. And he, and he, and he, but he has the, 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 uh, uh, the awareness that, you know, that's probably an impossible thing to find. And, uh, and, and, it, and it is sort of. I mean, it, what he needs is not a woman with a fearless heart. He needs his own heart to, to either be fearless or less, or less, uh, less so. 
So he gets back to northern Michigan, and, of course, there's stuff going on up there, not to give away the plot, but there are, uh, there are drug deals and there are crooked police, and, and he gets uh, quickly kind of drawn into some of the intrigues up there where he, he's in danger and, and his, his friendships and are in danger. Well, you mentioned the, the issue around drugs, and it seems like most of the characters in the book are at some point or another altered yeah. by drugs, whether yeah. it be the, the woman who the two men are both in love with, Lane, who sniffs glue, or whether it be speed or beer. And to me, the way you did that was, was created this excitement reading the book because I never – because when you knew the characters were altered, you, you, you were open to the possibility they were going to do something really unexpected in the moment, which I found really yeah. um, heightened the moment as, as I was reading because as much as I felt like I knew who the characters were, I also knew that they were also on something so yeah. that maybe they were going to act even out of character from what I believed in it. And mm-hmm. that, that was an interesting, an interesting experience. Yeah, I I um I don't know that I ever sat down with the idea that that everybody would be uh using something but uh, it did it did trend in that direction. Lane sniffs glue um not because and I decided on glue and I spent a long time wondering what it was about her. I mean, cuz she could she could drink, she could um do other drugs. Why glue? And then the reason that that came to me is because it's such a destructive thing to do. I mean, it, it, I mean, all drugs take their toll, but it seems to me with glue, you almost have to know that you are seriously messing yourself up. And she does. And she's not doing it for pleasure. She's doing it to, to erase herself in some ways. Uh, and it sort of works. Um <laughs> uh, Slater actually, you know, he doesn't get too, uh, he doesn't get, he's really not on speed until uh, the very end of the book. But because of the way the book is told and he's remembering things all the time he's talking to us and telling us about it, he, he is kind of speed addled. But he's, he, but he's relating all the stuff that happened, you know, before he, uh, before he was given that little uh, bottle of pills by Charlie, the, uh, the Northern Michigan, Charlie is, is, I like Charlie a lot. He's like the northern Michigan small-town drug dealer and puppet master. He's got his hands and everything. He's got bribes. He thinks he's totally in control of this tiny town of Wolverine. And to a certain extent, he, he is, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the Bob Dylan song, mm-hmm. Shelter from the Storm. And I, I guess we should mention that this takes place in the 1970s. Right. Um, I don't know anything about Michigan history, but I felt like it was the end of an era because you bring in this issue around gentrification and the building of these condos and people changing the landscape. Uh, I know it's all in the background, but it it felt like maybe something was dying in the background of what was going on. Is that true to what was going on in Michigan? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I, I, I I using the name Wolverine for this town where, where the, where it's set. And I got halfway through the book, and someone pointed out there really is a Wolverine, Michigan, that, that it's a town of 200 people elsewhere in the state. And by that point, I didn't want to change. So I, I, I still call this fictional place Wolverine. It's really based on two real cities or towns that are right next to each other. One is Frankfort, Michigan, and one is Alberta, Michigan, and there's a bay in between them. 
and but they're but they're just you know they're practically next they are next door, and the big uh, ferry boats that carried entire freight trains across Lake Michigan come in and dock there, and you can just see. I don't know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, sometime in the past, I think Alberta made the decision that they were going to be a town that, that uh, had industry and, and marine docks and, and blue-collar jobs. And, and this town that's right across the bay, you know, that made the decision, no, we're going to do tourists and boutiques and condos. And when I first started going up there, there wasn't that much different between, difference between the two of them. Now... Frankfurt is a very thriving summer location, and it's a fun place to go for families and kids and everybody. But it's 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 kind of a little bit like Cannon Beach, whereas Alberta, the town that kind of placed its bets on industry, that's actually where I like to hang out because there's nothing going on there, and it's the same. It hasn't changed. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of a – you feel that stress up there. They're dependent upon the tourist economy, but it also changes – uh, some of you know it, it gets crowded, and it, people who live up there, I know, I've heard some of them say some of the things that the people in the book say that, that, that you know the tourists are. We depend on them, but they also are kind of get in the way from time to time. Well, I've never been to Michigan myself, but I, I definitely felt like it was a character in the book yeah. that I got to know as I read it. Yeah. Um, you, you write a little bit about how even though the book takes place in Michigan, that the Northwest played a real crucial role in, in bringing it to yeah. to fruition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, uh, I started this book in Seattle. I was living in Seattle. I was I was working for Seattle City Light, you know, the electric utility in Seattle. And I, I read this interview with, uh, it was an interview with, in Rolling Stone with Dylan, where he says, you know, if you want to be an artist, you got to go out and find the electricity. And I'm thinking... Well, I'm working with electricity every day, but clearly not the right kind. And uh, uh, I started taking classes. I took a class from a, a teacher and a writer named Jack Cady, who was uh, later taught at Pacific Lutheran uh, University. Uh, and Jack really got me started. I, I, uh, I was writing about trains then, and he encouraged me to kind of keep pushing that. So I eventually uh, left my job and spent five years in Seattle without a job, just doing picking up you know the kind of freelance things that writers pick up, trying to do the first draft. Uh, I used to go back to Michigan, and my my friend there, who does have a cabin out in the woods, would say, "Just stay. You know, you're writing about Michigan. Just stay here," because I would go around all day writing down these all these things that are in the books about how. You know, the cherry trucks would take a corner too fast and some of the cherries would fall off the top and you'd see them at the corner, uh, you know, on a dirt road uh, where, that had a sharp corner. You'd see cherries on the road. All the stuff that, that is just kind of the detail of the book came from hanging out at my friend's northern Michigan cabin summer after summer. But I also, when he would say just stay and I would say, I, you know, all of the connection that I have to the writing community, the writing groups, first in Seattle and here in Portland, is all in the Northwest. I started working when I moved to Portland with uh, Stephen Allred and Joanna Rose, who teach at the Pinewood Table. Totally changed my ability as a writer. I mean, there just wouldn't be a book if I hadn't spent five years every Thursday night in their living room around that table with a bunch of other writers. And I learned as much from the other writers as I did from the teachers. So... Yeah, I think there's just a web of resources for writers here in Portland and also in Seattle that just 
I don't know if it exists other places. I didn't find it other places. I had to, I had to be here to write this book. On a totally another topic, a new phenomenon in, in books these days are, are video book trailers. And right. I, I have to say that Tin House did this fantastic job with your your book trailer. It was such a joy, and I'd encourage people to seek out the wire-to-wire book trailer to to watch it. Can you tell us any any little piece of info about how it was as somebody who's writing all of a sudden being on screen? Because yeah. yeah. that must be kind of weird to go from – writing a book and then now you're acting and you're in a, a trailer yeah, of sorts. Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, actually the, the crew that did it, it was Tin House and then a film company called Juliet Zulu, Juliet Zulu were amazing, uh, because they, they told me almost nothing about it. They just said, you know, we're, we're going to start, you know, meet us at, uh, I think it was city diner and, and, and we'll do it. And I get there. So I know nothing about a little bit I know about what we're going to do, but very little. And I've been involved in some filming projects before, you know, where you film the same thing several times, five times, a dozen times until you get it right. They don't work that way. They just film what's there. And so I, it made it very easy for me. I didn't have to do anything in particular. They they were willing to take whatever happened. And they made this amazing – I mean, they they had some good ideas, though. I mean, they – we went to uh, the freight yard, and um, you know, a train came by, and there was some freight hopping going on that you know you can't script, but it happened. Uh, someone was sent out to get some Mad Dog Twenty Twenty, and so there was some of that. Um, it definitely felt like it did justice to to the book to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I I when we got done with that day, I thought, man, I don't know what you're making out of this. And when I saw it later, they really did a great job with it. So, Scott, are you working on a new project now? I am. I'm working on uh, two projects that uh, I think will both eventually become novels, and I'm, I'm kind of just pushing them both out right now to see which one comes next. One of them is a, is a shorter uh, and I think a little kind of funnier book uh, that in, in some ways is the inverse of Wire to Wire. In Wire, in wire to Wire, it's, it's, this isn't giving much away because you find this out in the first chapter. The main character, Michael Slater, uh, has no money, but he's driving a, an old uh, Ford Ranchero, which is just stuffed with drug money, only he doesn't know it. And so, you know, $100 bills keep fluttering out, and, he, and everybody keeps wondering where they're coming from. So that's a situation where a character actually has something that's valuable, uh, at least in market terms, and doesn't know it. And then I just felt like turning that around to, uh, uh, the, in, the, in this new uh, book that I'm working on, the characters have something that they think is very valuable, but but really don't. And the reader knows this, but they don't. And it's it's still it probably would get called a crime novel. It's um, uh, it's set in Seattle and uh, the Northwest, and it's closer to being done. I'm also really interested in writing about. I've spent a lot of time in Detroit, and I think Detroit's a fascinating place. You know, you read. If you just read it superficially, it's a, it's a dying city. But I don't think that's all it is. I think in some ways what was Detroit, is, some of that has died, but other stuff is, that's interesting is happening. And, and I also spent a little time in, in Phnom Penh last year. And what struck me was how much they want to be an American city. They want to speak English. They want to spend dollar bills. You know, we've got, so we've got this old American city which is struggling and going through some kind of rebirth and then I'd spent some time in this 
foreign place that wants to be like an American city and started putting together a novel that involved both of those. That one's going to take me longer because it's just more complex. Sure. That's, those sound fascinating. Yeah. Well, it's great having you on Between the Covers today, Scott. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. We were talking today with Scott Sparling, the author of Wire to Wire. And if your interest was piqued, he's reading tonight at the Downtown Powell's, I believe at 730.